Last week we talked about what is a church, and this week we're going to talk about what is the purpose of the church. So F.B. Meyer, who was a Christian writer and a pastor and a godly man, he wrote this a few years back. He said, it is urgently needful that the Christian people of our charge should come to understand that they are not a company of invalids to be wheeled about or fed by hand, nursed and comforted, the minister being the head physician and nurse. We shouldn't be like that. He said, but the church should be a garrison in an enemy's country, every soldier of which should have some post or duty at which he should be prepared to make any sacrifice rather than quitting. I thought that was pretty good. Good enough I wanted to start off tonight with that. Greg and Lisa and I went and heard this man speak at the Southern Seminary Chapel last year. His name was Ben Stewart. And he was preaching on Philippians, but he began his sermon relating that he had some buddies that were Navy SEAL friends of his that he kind of hung around. And in driving with a couple of them, one of them recommended a book to him that was about having a warrior's mentality. So this guy's a preacher, and he's like, okay, I'll read that book. So he read that book, and he said in this book it talked about the Spartans, not the Michigan State Spartans, but the ancient warrior Spartans. And what he was relating out of that book was that there were two keys to the Spartans' success in conquering people, other people. And number one is they were a focused people he said, as warriors. They were focused on one thing from the time they were little children. And he said they were focused on warfare. From the age of five, those little boys were trained on how to kill and intimidate other armies. They were focused on that one thing. And the second thing was they had unity. So when they would go out to face any army, I'm just relating what Ben Stewart said. I'm going to read this for myself. But he said when they would get out to face any army, whether it was the Thessalonians or the Greeks, they would line up shoulder to shoulder, get those shields out in front of them and over top of them, and just come right at the opposing army. And they were like one huge battering ram, just an overwhelming sight coming at them. And he said when another army saw them charging, they would drop their shield, drop their spear, and get a piece of paper and start writing up the terms of surrender. I mean, that's how incredible it was. But that's a good point that I thought he made is why I wanted to repeat it. And that's what we need as a church. We need to have unity and focus. Need to have unity and focus or purpose, however you want to do it. And when you combine those two things in our church here, we'll fulfill God's purpose for establishing us as a church here in Shelbyville, Kentucky. So last week... I talked about what a church is and what are the basic requirements for being considered a New Testament church. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time reviewing that, actually. But we said it's not just three guys meeting under a tree, reading Isaiah, praying, and talking about that. That's not what a church is. But I gave this definition. And a local church is an organized body of baptized believers led by a spiritually qualified shepherd or pastor affirming their loving relationship to the Lord Jesus, in other words, they're saved, and to each other by regular observance of the Lord's Supper, committed to the authority of the Word of God, gathering regularly for worship, which includes the edification of each other through the gifts given by the Holy Spirit, and a church has the proclamation of the gospel to the world by each member. Now, I believe that's a good basic definition of what constitutes a New Testament church. Talked about that last week. But tonight I want to look at what is the purpose or purposes of God establishing a church. So we don't meet here on Sundays and Wednesdays because we're just a social club. We're not a social club. I'll just relate this to myself. When I was a Catholic, my purpose for going to church is because my parents made me. And also, you know, you just think, well, if I go, just perhaps, you know, God will have some kind of mercy on me, and I just maybe might make it into heaven. He's just not as mad at me as he could be if I didn't go to church. And that was the only reason. But that's not the reason that we meet here and that we're established by God to be Shelbyville Christian Assembly. So everyone here has a responsibility before the Lord to be a faithful part of this body. 
That's what the message is. And so to do that, we all need to have focus and purpose, and we need to have unity. And believe me, the devil is trying to destroy both. He really is. Because without that, we have nothing, really. And with that, we have everything. And so he's going after that. Unity and our purpose. So I want to show you all something. It's supposed to be a building, but we lost the top so you could read it. <laughs> that's not Adam's fault. That's my fault. But actually, this isn't something I came up with, but I saw it in a book, but I thought I really didn't feel like I could improve on it. So I'm using this kind of as the model for what I'm going to talk about. But down here you have the foundation, the biblical theological foundation, which if you can't read it in the back, it says knowing God and the power of his spirit. It's got to start there. We've got to know the Lord. We've got to be saved, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit, with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And it goes on to say, in understanding who we are individually in Christ and corporately as his church. Now, I spent five messages here talking about that very thing. We spent five weeks talking about our new identity in Christ. And so actually... You can go through Ephesians 1, 2, 3, and you're going to get all of that in there. That's all the indicatives, you could say, your foundation. that You have to have all that, knowing you're saved, knowing you're under the blood, knowing you've been predestined by God unto salvation. Here's what we're going to talk about now. These are the six pillars that are the purpose of the church. Tonight, we'll just be able to do these first three. Exalt God in worship, evangelize the world through proclamation and missions, Equip believers through teaching and mentoring. And the last three we'll deal with next week. Edify others through ministry and service. Encounter God in prayer and encourage one another in fellowship. And what we have on top there is that is where that is all lived out. All of those purposes of our church are lived out in where we work, where we go to church here, within our families, and in our personal walk. So if anybody wants that, just email me, and rather than me making off 100 copies and half of them end up in the trash can, if you want to copy that, I'd be glad to send it to you. Just send me an email, and I'll send it back to you as an attachment. jhsollinger at gmail.com. I'll be glad to send it to you. <laughs> but on the basis of that foundation and those six purposes, that's what we're going to talk about, because God has not called anyone in here to be what we call Lone Ranger Christians. We understand that, right? We talked about that last week. We are a family, a temple. We're a gathering of God's people. That's what we are. That's why we're here. The first thing it had, that first pillar, was to exalt God in worship. And some of this stuff I know is basic, but we still we need to just get it in our thinking. So <laughs> how does the Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's just a worshipful verse, really. You want to worship when you read it. But we've been created to worship God, and God as our creator deserves our worship. He's worthy of our worship. I like this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said this. He said, the most important and highest activity that a company of God's people could ever engage in, the most important and highest activity, he says, that a gathering of God's people could engage in is to offer Almighty God acceptable worship. I thought that was good, and I also think that's true. In uh, Revelation 4.11, we sing this song. And so we're talking about he's created us to worship and glorify him. Revelation 4.11, thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because our song goes on to say, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And we sing that song, but do we really think about what we're saying? That four is a purpose. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? What's the purpose? For you've created all things. You're worthy. Created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Just because he's our creator, he's worthy of that, to receive glory, honor, and praise. It's his pleasure his will, his desire, that the universe be created. That's, we don't know exactly why. It's just his pleasure to do it. But he's put into the heart of all men, all of us that he's created, there is this urge to worship. Saint or sinner. And listen, everybody in here, because we're hardwired that way, 
we will worship something. In Acts 17, when Paul went into Athens, he walks in there and he notices all these altars and images of God that the people there worshipped. And so we're saying man is created to worship something. And here's what he tells these people. He sees all these altars that are here. And he's walking around looking and he's watching them bow down to them. Whatever they do, pray. And he says, you men of Athens, Acts 17, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship. He said, you ignorantly worship the unknown God. He says, him declare I unto you. And what is he? He tells them, he says, here's this unknown God. This is the only God. And this is why you should be worshiping, because he goes on to tell them it's God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need anything from us. We worship him strictly because he's worthy. And he says, seeing that he gives to all life and breath and all things. So those ancient Greeks in ignorance, they're worshiping these many gods, including the unknown God, because their hearts are cut off. Outside of the revelation of the Bible, people worship they don't know what. They're worshiping in the dark. And that's what they were doing because of sin. It's cut them off. But even in their darkness and in their sin, we can see by that that man is hardwired to worship. So anytime you go to a concert, even a Christian concert, and they're just putting on a show and people are raising their hands, that's worship, for better or for worse. That's what's going on there. It might be twisted, but it's worship. So there's four words that are translated worship in the Bible, two in the Old Testament and two in the New Testament. But the main word for worship in the Old Testament is shaha, and it means to bow or stoop down before somebody, to prostrate yourself before the one you're worshiping. That's the way that word's used many times. And so, for instance, when Moses, he asked God, he said, will you show me your glory? And God says, ah, you can't see my glory. You can't see my face. I will show you my back parts. And God passed before him in all his majesty, and it says in Exodus, and Moses made haste. When you're in the presence of the Lord, you will make haste to bow down when you really sense that. And that's what it said. Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. That's what worship is. In God's presence, he's worshiping with his head bowed down to the ground. Psalm 99.5 says this, Exalt ye the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Well, where's his footstool at? You'd have to be bowed down to do that. Worship at his footstool for he is holy. So when you start seeing what the Bible says, the holiness of God, the majesty of God, the creator God, it starts changing the form of your worship. And all the flesh should leave when that happens. All the fleshly forms of worship. Psalm 95, 6, we used to sing this song. Oh, come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. We're going to bow down to him because he is our God. He is our maker. Come, let us worship and bow down. That was a beautiful song back when we sang that song. And the word for worship in the New Testament is proskuneo, and it essentially means the same thing. The only difference with the New Testament, you have this sense of the lords back then would put their hand out and you would bow down and kiss their ring. You would worship these leaders and these kings. In fact, when Greg and I... I don't know if he remembers it, but when we were confirmed at a Catholic church, what we had to do is this big old overweight bishop was sitting up there in his little thing with his hand like this in his ring. And we, as little 14-year-old Catholics, we had to go up and kneel before him and kiss his ring. That's what you did. It's, it's a form of worship. But that's what that sense is in the New Testament. And that word is used in John 4, 24, God is spirit. And they that worship him, they that bow down before him, whether literally or in your heart, and that should be our heart whenever we're praising and worshiping. And we'll see other things too. It's not just limited to that. But they that worship 
him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We typically don't kneel down when we're singing or at other times. And sometimes people have. I've seen people do that here and at the seminars and all that. You know, there's really no problem with that. There shouldn't be. It could be a time a person's having that kind of experience with the Lord. That's just in their heart. And I don't have a problem with that, really. If you're not doing it for show, we shouldn't be like, what's he doing over there? He's the only one in the whole room doing it. Well, he may be the only one in the whole room that's experiencing the holiness of his creator. He may be the one that's in the right frame of mind. We don't know. So we should have our eyes shut anyways. How did you even notice him? <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. But what is worship? We're talking back to we're gathered here as a church. Our purpose is gathered and we're saying we're gathered here to worship. But what is worship? Let me ask you, is it just when we sing? Is it just a lot of times we'll talk about worship songs and generally when you talk about worship songs, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about a slow song. Slow, worshipful song. Everyone's starting to get quiet. Is that what worship is limited to? Worship songs. And I believe... The Bible teaches it's the whole service that we have here from beginning to end is worship. You think about it. We'll talk about hearing the word. We'll talk about other things. But what about when we have communion at the end of a service on the first Sunday of the month? Is that not worship? Are we not worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ? We don't always sing then. So we sing a lot of times when we're getting ready. But that is truly a form of worship, is it not? So worship is the reason we gather here. And if you would, please turn to Nehemiah 8. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, on through Chronicles. And after that, you have Ezra and Nehemiah. If you would turn to Nehemiah 8, please. Beginning in verse 1, and it says there, And all the people gathered themselves together as one man. So here we have a gathering of Israel together, an assembly into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding. In other words, anyone that was old enough to understand the Bible, they brought upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and women and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. You think about that. We, a lot of times, if I read a chapter, you're starting to lose people. And these people, how long would he have been reading and how much did he read a half of day just reading from the Bible? And it said they weren't bored. They weren't falling asleep. They were attentive to hearing the word of God. The Bible being read. Skip down to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akab and Shabbethai, and Hodijah, and Messiah, and Kalita, and Azariah, and Jozebad, and Hanan, and Pelai, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. That's what the priest did. And Nehemiah which is in the Tirshatha, and Ezra the priest describe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said unto them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions unto them for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy unto our Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites stilled all the people, saying, Hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be ye grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth. Why? Because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. They're happy. They're going forth from the presence of the Lord, happy that they had understood that word. Now listen, 
Had those people worshipped? They worshipped. Look at verse 6 again. They've listened to the reading of the word, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all of the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands and bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground at the hearing of the word of God. Wow, I would call that worship. But worship's not just when we sing. It's when we hear his word, and if the song leader reads a verse, or after the song service is over, somebody in our congregation reads a verse, that is still, we're worshiping. The whole service, I believe, is worship. We gather together as a church. We worship God, yes, through music. Very important. But also, what about when we pray? Are we not worshiping God when we pray? I think we are. And through the reading of the word. He was the dean of theology over at Southern. He pastored and preached. And uh, we went on a trip over to Greece and Rome with a man named Russell Moore. I think he's a really good preacher. One thing I've noticed with him is every time before he preaches, before he reads a text, no matter how long it is, he asks everybody to stand up in reverence to the word of God. Every single time he'll do that. And I like that. Now, it can get to where it's just a routine like anything else, but I really like that because that's what I'm seeing here in Ezra. These people are having respect. Said so they reverence the Word of God. And we can lose that because we get too familiar with it sometimes. And we need to have that. You know, last night I was <laughs> just the opposite is what I experienced. I'm preaching at prison and I'm reading my text and literally I almost could not hear myself think. I had two guys over here. I mean, the service had started. And I'd already prayed. I got two guys over here talking really loud, two guys back that way, and somebody in the back. Loud enough to where one of the prisoners over to the left here, he says, John, I couldn't hear a word you said. Now, where is the respect in all? Just the opposite of what we're reading here in Nehemiah and what we're talking about. These guys had no respect at all for the word of God. But we should have respect when we gather here. That's part of our worship. You would also turn over to 1 Corinthians 14. I want to see something else here. So we're saying all worship is not just singing, is the point. 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 23, says this. Paul writes, If therefore the whole church be come together in one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that you are mad? But if all prophesy, and there come in one that believes not, or one unlearned, is he convinced of all? He is convinced of all, he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. What's he saying there? He's saying if we all gather together here, together in one place like we are tonight, and he's saying you got all these people speaking out loud in tongues, and we happen to have somebody in here, somebody's friend, somebody invited into church, or we have people occasionally just wander in here. It's been happening lately, which is fine. He says if that happens, though, an unbeliever or somebody that's a new Christian and hasn't been taught, and they hear everybody in here speaking in tongues with no interpretation, they're going to think we're crazy people. That's what he says. They're going to think you're all mad. But, he says, if that person, he's a sinner, doesn't know the Lord, comes in here, nobody knows him, very few people know him. Somebody comes in, it's a friend over there, and Brother Terry has a tongues or has a prophecy. God's moved on his heart, and just he says whatever. It's, and it's directly, he's read that guy's mail over here. Somebody else over here, Lane, stands up and has the same thing. He says, what's going to happen? He's saying that guy is going to realize something, that God is in here of a truth. And what does it say will be the result of that? Worship. That had nothing to do with the song service. Isn't that what it says there? You've exposed him. He's convinced. He's convicted is what that word says. Convicted of all. And called to account is what that word judged means. He's called into account. In other words, he's been exposed by God. God's doing him a favor through members of this church. Wouldn't that be something to see that happen here? Oh, that'd be a real blessing, I think. And that's what it says. And so the secrets of his heart, he thought he's coming in here hiding sins from the Lord. It's all exposed. 
And oh, it brings him to repentance and conviction. That's what it's saying there. Causes him to fall on his face. God is in this place of a truth. And he's worshiping when that happens. Amen. Well, that is the kind of worship I would love to see happen here. Not without music, but that's the kind of worship I'd like to see. You know, when my brother Joel, and when Sue drug him down here before he was a Christian, and this was when we met back on Clay Street Baptist Church, and he came to our meetings, and after he got saved, he told me later, he said, you know what? He said, I sensed a presence of the Lord in those meetings. It just convicted him. He goes, I knew God was real. And he told me that's what caused him, or one of the things, that's what caused him to get saved. So, man, is it important that we come in prayed up in our services here and praying that God could use You don't know. You're spirit-filled, and God gives you a word, just puts it on your heart. And you're like, man, I've never done this before, but here we go. You don't have to get all deep about it. Thus saith the Lord. Just say, look, the Lord's impressing this on my heart, giving me this to say. That's all you got to do. And listen, if that person out there is the one you're speaking to, they'll know it. You don't need that tack on thus saith the Lord. It'll tell them it was thus saith the Lord, and they'll repent. Well, listen, corporate worship, like what we do here, that is what we are going to be experiencing in the eternal state. We're not going to be off on a cloud somewhere strumming our harp or on some planet like some churches teach. Because, no, the book of Revelation, it gives us a picture of what we're going to be experiencing. It tells us, Revelation 7 says this, John writes, after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude. I mean, man, when you get around 2,000 people and hear them worship or more, I mean, man, that is just something that will make your hair stand on end at times, won't it? And John's writing in the glory hereafter, I beheld a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues. They stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. That'll be the song we're singing. All glory will be going to Him. It'll be a time of rejoicing. Don't be thinking about anything else, work or anything. It'll be praise God to the Lamb that brought me here when I didn't deserve it. Salvation to the Lamb. And it goes on to say, all the angels, myriads of angels, stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts, and they fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And I'm telling you, I've been here, I've been other places when the Spirit of God has just come down in a way to where it's all you can do to just hold yourself together. You just so much want to praise Him and adore Him. And I don't know how to explain it really other than you have to experience it. Those times like that, look, it has to end. We all have to eventually go eat and go to our jobs and go home and do those things, right? Because we won't have to do that in heaven. We won't have any of that to have to mess with. We won't even have to go to sleep, take a nap. What we do on Sunday. But when that does happen, those moments it happens, what is that? It's a foretaste of heaven brought down to us here. Because we are an outpost of the kingdom of heaven on this earth. Strangers and pilgrims. Our citizenship is where, the Bible tells us. In heaven. So every now and then, God is gracious enough to allow us to experience what our citizenship is is involved with what it entails. And that comes in that worship. And when we corporately join together to worship the Lord in song, God will come in our midst. And he does. We can know his presence is with us. Zephaniah 3.17, another song we have sung. The Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over you with joy. He will rest in his love. He will joy over us with singing. I mean, that's what's happening. When we got relationships right in here and we got our hearts right and we bring all that in here and we've been walking with the Lord, we bring that in here on a Sunday or a Wednesday. Well, I mean, the more we'll do that, the more we'll get ourselves consecrated as a church, the more this corporate gathering will just be such a blessing. And we'll take it out with us. And then we'll be looking forward to coming for the next time. Because we want to experience it again. That's the way it'll work. 
So we need to take seriously our gathering together here, coming before the God that saved us. That's what we're doing when we worship, and we can tend to forget that because we're really familiar with the song. But what a tremendous price he paid. So we should be careful to pray before we come. Make sure that our relationships are right in the body. It is serious because we know about that in 1 Corinthians 11, right? When they had communion, and he says, some of you all... You had some problems. You weren't discerning the body. You had some problems in the body you weren't taking care of. And he says, for that cause, some are weak, sickly, and some even die. So that's something to take serious when we're going to have it this Sunday. It's something to take serious in the next few days, our relationship to the church. We need to make sure our music is scriptural, not love songs to Jesus, but scriptural. You know, most of the great hymn writers were also ministers. Those old hymns are just filled with theology. You could sit there and read hymns and get a theological education, literally. And that's why they're a blessing. There's depth to that music that happens. And we should be reverent whenever anyone prays or reads the word or preaches because we are gathered here to worship our Lord. We are. Now, I had lunch with Michael Webb a few weeks ago, and he said something that I just still haven't gotten over, something that he said. And he told me that when he comes to church, that he's coming here to give glory and honor first and foremost to the one that sacrificed his life for his salvation. He said this, he goes, we give glory and honor to the, a soldier who was willing to fall on a grenade to save four of his fellow soldiers. He said, but Jesus fell on our grenade and paid an infinitely greater price than that soldier. He's probably just talking from his side. But I'm telling you, from my side, I'm like, I still haven't got over that. I think about it constantly. And he says, I can't worship him enough. And I thought, man, that's the attitude we need to have when we come here. All that's, I'm thinking for myself when he's talking. I'm not thinking about anybody else. Oh, man, can we lose that? Just, just another praise service. Can't wait till it's over so we can move on out of here. No, it's a time of worship before the Lord our God, our maker. And he's hardwired us to worship. And we're going to worship something. That's what we said. And there's only one acceptable worship on the day of judgment. And that's going to be the true worship of God. Jesus said, he told the devil, when the devil tried to get him to bow down the knee to him in the wilderness, what did he say? He said, you shall worship the Lord thy God and him only shalt thou worship. That's something to think about, Selah. So our second purpose, that's the first purpose, is exalting God together in worship. And the second purpose is to evangelize the world through proclamation and missions, spreading the gospel to every creature. And if you wouldn't mind turning to Matthew 28, I know this is a familiar verse. I could have quoted it, but I would like us to look at it. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. What is commonly known as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, and it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, now he's talking to the twelve here, saying, All power, or the eleven actually, Judas was gone, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, he says, you don't have to do this on your own because you couldn't. He says, lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So the question then is, is that commandment that he just gave there in those three verses, is that only to the 12 or the 11, as I said? Or is it only for preachers to go and make disciples? Or is it only for Billy Graham? Is it only for Billy Graham? If we take seriously the New Testament, we'll see that every member of the early church took this command from Jesus as applying to them. Now, we're talking the early church. We're not talking about today's church, maybe. Hopefully, it'll be our church. We'll take it seriously. So if you would, turn over to Acts 8, and I'll show you that. So who is the Great Commission for? Just the apostles? In Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, And Saul was consenting unto his death, talking about Stephen. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. 
And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. And as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. And look at verse 4. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere doing what? Preaching the word. They that were scattered went everywhere preaching the word, it says. And that word for preaching is where we get our English word for evangelize. It's the Greek word euangelizo. Euangelizo. It sounds like evangelize. And it means to proclaim the good news. So it said they went everywhere proclaiming the good news of the word. That's what this church that was scattered. And we just read, he gave the great commission to the apostles in Matthew 28. But where were the apostles when this is going on? We're saying, is it just for the apostles that he gave that commandment? Where were they? Well, look back at the end of verse 1 in chapter 8. It says, they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What does it say? They weren't involved in this evangelization. They got to stay home. This is the rest of the church out proclaiming the good news. So it wasn't the elders. You know who was out proclaiming the good news? The deacons. For one, you know how we know that? It was Philip. It's right there if you go on and read chapter 8. Philip was scattered and he made it up to Samaria. Just the deacon preaching the good news in Samaria. And did he have good results? Read chapter 8. I'd say he had really good results. <laughs> but what about the rest of them? What about the rest of them? We read about Philip there. We'll turn over just a couple chapters to chapter 11. And we'll see what happened to the rest of them. Beginning in verse 19, and it picks it up again. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, they traveled as far as Venice and Cyprus and Antioch. Now here it says they preached the word to none but the Jews only at that time. But some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians. So in Antioch, they kind of got out of that mold, preached unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And it says, verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. That's just ordinary disciples that are scattered around. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And then the tidings of these things came unto the ears of the church, which was in Jerusalem, and they sent forth Barnabas that he should go as far as Antioch, who when he came and had seen the grace of God was glad and exhorted them all that with purpose of heart that they would cleave unto the Lord. So the whole church is involved in proclaiming the gospel. That's what we just see there in the book of Acts. Ordinary people, ordinary Christians, if you want to put it that way, if there is such a thing, people like us, you and me, went forth proclaiming, evangelizing the good news. So we just preached the whole message on preparation with the gospel of peace, having our feet shod with that. And here's the thing I want to say. For me, from my side, this was a great thing. I had a lot of people respond to that message. I gave books away. I had people come, and they're still asking me for books to be able to help themselves because a common problem is it's a lot of times not so much you don't want to share, it's just you don't know how to share and you don't want to seem like an idiot or make things worse by doing it the wrong way. I appreciate that. People came, asked for those books and I hear reports of people that have been doing just that, sharing the gospel out there that weren't before and I'm saying that's a real blessing because that is a purpose of our church. That It's a responsibility that every member has. And Charles is out there talking to people about getting the Holy Spirit. Calling me getting tracks. Praise the Lord. It's not me. It's what the Bible says. That's what it tells us. And people are reacting to the Bible. That's good. Obeying the Lord. And he'll bless people for that. But we have to be ready, don't we? We talked about that. Peter says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that was in you. And that doesn't mean you have to sit around with a smile on your face waiting for somebody to bring it up. That's not what Peter's talking about. Right? That's not what he meant. But it does mean you can share when the opportunity arises and you should be ready. A lot of people out there really need the Holy Spirit. They struggle. They've been born again. They've never been taught about it. 
I mean, I told Tanner, I really appreciated his testimony last week because, you know, getting the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues is great, experiencing now all the other things that come with it. But the biggest thing is it gives you power over sin. Oh, that's the one thing we really need the baptism of the Holy Spirit for, and that'll, that'll happen. Because you're going to meet a lot of people out there, if you start talking to them, where they're frustrated with their Christianity, ready to give up. I just don't feel like I have any power over sin. Well, if you know what the Bible says, you can share your experience and say, look, here's where it says it. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. And you can just go through and show them. And man, then you get ready to pray for them. Step, take that step of faith. Well, that'll be something there, right? But God will bless you with you do that. So all of us are called by God to share the gospel. I talked to these guys at prison last night about that. We are in our different spheres. We're around people that other people aren't around. You're around people I'll never see or someone else. And you may be the one person. That's the opportunity you have to share the gospel with them in a meaningful way is what I'm saying. And that's why in Romans 10 it says, How shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And you may be that preacher, just like in Acts 8. And you think, who, me? Oh, yeah. Just pray for God to, to bless you, to open doors, and you'll see something happen. I guarantee it. It'll be that way, and you'll be blessed by it. So one thing we need to remember, though, is evangelism is simply telling the good news. It doesn't include making sure the other person responds. That's not our obligation. Because it says at the end of Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. It's not of us. That's a burden we don't have to carry. Well, what results have you seen? I don't know. That's not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to pray and to share the gospel correctly, right? And then live lives. We have a responsibility also, though, to live lives consistent with the message that we're preaching. Because the message you should be preaching and this is where a lot of people, they won't share because they're in sin. That's really the number one cause, not fear. And so if your life's right, what you're going to be telling this person is you need to repent. But if you need to repent, you probably aren't going to tell them that. But if your message is right, you're going to say you need to repent of your sins and give your entire life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is part of it. But you can't force them to come to the Lord. You may see them repent, or you may not. It may happen through you sharing what you did of the gospel. It may happen to them a month later, a year later. And they said the average person, it takes about eight encounters with a true Christian and hearing the gospel in some form before they come to the Lord. That's generally what happens. It's not the first time. So you may be number one, you may be number five, or you may get the privilege of being number ten. But it's God that gives the increase, right? One waters and one sows, but God's the one that gives the increase. Because you can't coerce people. You can't argue them into the faith. You can't use logic with your friends and with your family and with your children to argue them into the faith. Mark Dever said this, Christian evangelism by its very nature involves no coercion, only proclamation and love. We are to present the gospel freely to all. We cannot manipulate anyone to truly accept it. And that's true whether you're talking about salvation, healing, baptism of the Holy Spirit, deliverance, any of that. We can't manipulate people into what we can see they need. God has to do that. He has to open their eyes. All we're responsible to do is to faithfully proclaim the truth and pray for them. Dever also said this, to evangelize is to declare on the authority of God what he has done to save sinners to warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what evangelism is. To declare in the authority of God what he has done to save sinners, to warn men of their lost condition, to direct them to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that should be our mission. Everyone in here, we have the same mission as our Lord and Savior. And what was his mission? He said, for the Son of Man is come to seek and save that which is lost. And I appreciate people that haven't been saved that long. They have got a zeal to see others saved. And you can tend to lose that if you're not careful once you've been in this walk for a while. 
Well, we're all expected to share the gospel when we can. But I want to say this, so we're talking about sharing the gospel, evangelism, and missions. Some are going to be able in here to go places that others can't. Some can travel to other countries. Some, like me, can go into prison. Some can be involved in other ways. But just because you can't go to Guatemala or in a prison or some outreach doesn't mean you are sinning. You know, God may have you praying for those that can go. Now, we all have an obligation that when we can, we should share. We've said that. But it's just as important to have people, for me anyways, that I know are praying. Now, my wife, she can't go into prison with me. But I'm telling you what, I'm so grateful that she stays home and prays and, my, and other members of my family and other people. That's just as important. It really is. And Jesus said in Luke 10, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. So I am praying for you to be a laborer, whoever you are, because I need help in prison. You want to go, you think, I want to share the gospel. I've got, easily, I will set you up that you can share the gospel with lost people, as many as you want. We won't run out of them. You can evangelize, and I'll be glad to take you in. Just let me know. I'll fight these guys on these mission guys trying to recruit people. I'm just teasing about all that. We got a lot of opportunities, fellas and girls, different opportunities. So the third thing we want to talk about tonight is the third purpose of the church is to equip believers through teaching. And if you would turn over to Ephesians 4 for that, beginning in verse 10. And it says there that Jesus, he that descended, is the same also that ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, carried away with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie and wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom our whole body is fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplies according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So that's such a familiar passage of Scripture that a lot of times we can tend to overlook what it's saying. So in the King James in verse 12 there, when it talks about for the perfecting of the saints, most other translations, including the New King James, have given the proper translation for that verse. Now maybe perfecting back in 1611 would have made sense, but really that word should be reading equipping, equipping the saints. So the fivefold ministry gifts are given to the church to equip the saints for their ministry. There's no comma there either. That's the purpose why we come and hear teachings. One reason is to be equipped for ministry. So that word equip was used by philosophers back in that day to speak, listen to this, of guiding people to fulfill their purpose. In this case, it would be ministry. So as you all here teaching, you should be equipped to do the ministry God has given you. And everyone in here is called into full-time ministry. Do we know that? Maybe we haven't been taught that, but that's the way it is. And as saints here teaching and you're equipped, what that word is when you're called to ministry, the word ministry just means service. <laughs> to serve. It's where we get our word deacon from. It's the same word. It just means to serve. It's no big deal. And it's ministry. The word is not evangelism. You're not equipping the saints for the work of evangelism. That may be part of it, but the word is ministry. And there's different types of ministry. Giving, healing, praying, helping those in need, or wherever God shows you to serve. That's all part of it. It's not just limited to going out and sharing the gospel and evangelism. Because he also says what else is supposed to happen there. It's for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, and why else do we have teaching? For the edifying of the body of Christ. 
to build the church up? Because a lot of times, don't we need encouragement? And that comes through the teaching that we have, right? Need encouragement. We need to know how to walk on paths of righteousness. And we need to be taught the whole counsel of God. So 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be mature or perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, which would be ministry. That's what the word of God would do. So when the whole counsel of God is taught, that is what will happen. So we'll have a solid understanding of sound doctrine, who God is, what faith is, what is the atonement, what's that all about? What about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues? Those types of doctrines, we'll have a correct understanding of them when the whole counsel of God is taught. And we'll learn how God expects us to live. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 is telling us, our ethics, and we'll be corrected. Because a lot of times, listen, I've seen this happen too many times with people close to me. They sat under this faith message. They'd walked in holiness. They'd heard all the same teaching that we have heard, and they got away from it and shut it all down and weren't hearing that. And next thing you know, it doesn't happen overnight. But over a period of time, I'm hearing them say and do things that I am just appalled. And I'm realizing they don't know what they're saying and doing. They think it's okay. And when you're here in this church and you continually hear the word, you realize what in the world is going on. But that's what happens when you get away from hearing teaching. You lose that correction, and you can be backslidden and not even be aware of it. And when that starts to happen in our lives, that's why we need to preach the whole counsel of God, right? Then it'll bring us back. And that's God's grace doing that for us, not letting us just wander off. But we have to do what? So we're talking about the purpose of a church, and you have to be in a church to hear the word preached. That's what we're talking about. It's critical to an individual and a church's stability. I want to do something here that, for me, it was helpful. Brother Hamilton did this a while back. It's been a few years back, I think. But he went through, and we'll take Matthew, and I want to skim through Matthew real quick and show the importance of teaching in the Lord Jesus Christ ministry. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 4. Because I'll tell you, when you see these verses, I've heard it many times where people say doctrine's divisive, doctrine's not important. They're talking about teaching when they say that. When you see these verses here, it gives you something to answer yourself and the critics. So Matthew 4, and we're just going to be looking at one verse in all these chapters, but it'll make the point. Matthew 4, 23, it says this, And Jesus went about all Galilee, and what was he doing? Teaching in their synagogues and preaching. So they're not the same thing. Teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. Now go to Matthew chapter 9. You're going to have to turn fast if you're going to keep up. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. And it says there, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages doing what again? Teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So it's a continual ministry with him, this teaching and preaching. Then go over two chapters to chapter 11, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1, And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. On it goes. Then turn to chapter 21 of Matthew. 21, 23. And when he, Jesus, was coming to the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came unto him as he was doing what? Teaching. And they said, By what authority dost thou these things, and who gave thee this authority? They come at him, and he's busy doing what? What he always was busy about doing. Teaching. The word of God, because that's how faith comes. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Turn to chapter 26. You think, we've got to be about done towards the end of the chapter. You're right. <laughs> so Matthew 26, 55. Look what he says here. They come to take him away in the garden. And in that same hour said Jesus to the multitudes, Are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves for to take me? And how often did he say he did this? I sat daily with you teaching 
in the temple. And you didn't get hold of me then. Well, what does he say he was doing? Daily teaching in the temple. If it's that important to the Lord in his ministry, it's got to be important to do and to hear. And if you don't mind, if you would turn over to Acts, I want to show a few verses here where it was just as critical, not just with Jesus, but with the Apostle Paul. So Acts 15, Acts 15, verse 35, and it says there, And Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch. And what did they do in Antioch? Teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And then go to chapter 18. And here in chapter 18 and verse 11, it's talking about he was in Corinth, the city of Corinth, a large city. He says there about Paul, and he, Paul, continued there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. That's how that church was going to grow and be stable. That's the whole point I'm making here. It comes through the teaching of the word in the church. And the last place, if you would turn to Acts 28... And we literally are going to end in the book of Acts right here, verses 30 and 31. And look what it says. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Can we get the message with that? It kind of speaks for itself. Two whole years. That's all he did. People came and he would teach them. They probably had questions. He's clearing up things, setting down doctrine, writing letters, but he's teaching all these people. And so I would say we never outgrow, whether you think you do, or get so deep that we don't need to hear teaching from the Bible. Peter wrote this about our need to hear truths that we've already heard before. Listen, 2 Peter 1 says this, Wherefore, Peter wrote, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, he wrote, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it's suitable or meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. He said, I'm going to be teaching you truths that I know you already know, but you need to remember them, to be stirred up to remember them. That's all of us. You know, when I was in school, when I went to the seminary, and even now sometimes we would attend a seminary's chapel service, and I never once heard any man stand in that chapel service. And it's usually PhDs or pastors. I never heard one of them say anything that I had never heard already. Nobody brought anything new. But I'm going to tell you, I heard some great messages, and messages that stirred me up, and messages that convicted me. You're never going to outgrow that. And listen, there's sitting over on the one side of that place, there's PhDs sitting there that have studied the Bible. They know that Bible backwards and forwards better than anybody in this room, written commentary. And they're all sitting there, amen, and paying attention, getting blessed. So none of us are ever going to outgrow the need to hear solid teaching from the Word of God. Got to be grounded in the truth. And those guys, listen, they were just as blessed, those PhDs, as the janitor that was sitting in there because he's taking a break from his work to hear the guy preach, right? They really were. A lot of people, though, that are just saved or only been saved a year or a short amount of time, you got a lot to learn. But the problem is you need to hear the word more than you realize. I mean, I've been a Christian for 30 years, and I'm, I'm not talking to anybody in particular in here, but... <laughs> A lot of young people and young Christians think they know more than they do. It's just a common illness that strikes young Christians. It's pretty common. What we need to find is, this is what I would say is, we've got to find the balance, the balance between just coming and sitting and listening for years and never sharing or using what we've heard. That's the one extreme, right? And people that have just heard a little bit and they're running out to save the world without really being grounded in the faith. Missing a lot of meanings, and they just aren't hearing truth that they probably need to hear. It happens a lot of time. And the best illustration in the Bible that I can give of that is old Ahimehaz in 2 Samuel 18. So Absalom, in that story, David's favorite son, he got killed by Joab. Threw three darts right through the middle of his heart as he's stuck in that tree by that nice hair he had. He's hanging there, and Joab kills him. And Ahimehaz, he wants to run and tell David the tidings that the battle's over with. And Joab tells him, he says this to him, he says, you will not bear tidings this day, 
but you will bear tidings another day. And so Joab says, I'm giving the message to Cushai. And he tells Cushai, go tell the king what you have seen. And Cushai bowed himself unto Joab, and he starts a running. Cushai starts a running. But Ahimaaz, he can't stand it. He can't stand the fact that he's not the one with the message. He tells Joab, he says, let me, I pray thee, also run after Cushai. And Joab's like, why are you going to run, my son, seeing that you have no tidings ready? But Ahimaaz says, let me run. I just can't wait. And so Joab says to him, then, then run. Go ahead. And it says, Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain, and he must have been a marathon runner because it says he overtook Cushai and passed him up. He's quite the runner. And the watchman for David's watching, and he tells David, he says, well, I see two men running out there, David. Both of them by themselves, two men running alone. And the watchman says, me thinketh. I doubt if he said it that way, but that's the way it is in the Bible. And he says, me thinketh the running of the foremost. The first one is like the running of Ahimaaz. And David said, he's a good man, and he comes with good tidings. But when Ahimaaz finally gets to David, and he blurts out, he says, the Lord has delivered the men that were raised up their hand against the king. But David is only concerned about one thing. There's only one thing he wants to know about, and that is Absalom. And he asks Ahimaaz, he says, is the young man Absalom safe? And guess what? He didn't have that message. Ahimaaz, he says, I don't know. I just saw this big tolman. I don't know about that. And David says, then stand aside. You're running. You're busy, but you don't have the message. And I'm going to wait for Cushai because Cushai had the right message. He saw what had happened, and that's how he went. But that's what happens. A lot of Christians are busy and running, but they don't have the message. They haven't taken the time to be taught. And there's ways of being taught that aren't necessarily just sitting in here. But we have to know the word to give correct answers to the questions that are coming our way, right? And we must be able to discern truth from error so that we're not carried away by every wind of doctrine. You can get involved in things, being on the run all the time, and you can't really tell whether they're right or not. You think they're right, and they sound right, and most things are biblically based, but you really have to have teaching and be grounded, not carried around by every wind of doctrine. I think that is important. So we've got to have that balance. You don't want to get to where you're just sitting here rusting because all you do is sit and you never use anything you hear. But on the other hand, you can get, just get so busy that you're not really spending the time to learn from the Lord and spend time to know the Lord because there are just some things, it just takes experience to teach you. That's all there is to it. The only way you can learn. And that's what it's talking about over there in Hebrews chapter 5. So in conclusion, the church that God will bless and use, it's going to be a balanced church. So you can't have any one of those things higher or lower than the other. All six of them should be in balance. And three of the things we talked about today, because if a church is just all about worship, and more and more and more, a lot of churches spend the majority of their time in worship, and when they should be getting taught the word, it's just testimonies and just a little bit of truth. And it's just out of balance that way. And when a church is like that, the people are going to be shallow and worldly. Or if you have churches that all they focus on every meeting is John 3.16 and evangelism, and that's all they're about. Well, the church may grow in numbers, but it's not going to grow in maturity. It's going to be full of a lot of John 3.16 newborns. So we need that word for correction and how to live a righteous life. That's what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. But also, if a church only teaches and there's no life and no outreach, it will grow stagnant. It'll be like a pond that just sits where the water never moves, and in the heat of the summer, it just has scum. We've all driven by those ponds around here in the summertime. It's got scum growing over it, and the water is not only putrid, it's good for nothing. It's not good for drinking. You wouldn't want to swim in it. <laughs> Jesus said, what about us, though? He said that we would have rivers Rivers, not a stagnant pool, rivers of water flowing out of our bellies to minister to others. And that's what you see in the book of Acts. Those people were being taught, but they're also sharing what they're being taught. You've got to have that balance in there. Not tilting from one side to the other. And believe me, 
it's easy to get out of balance. So at one point here, we didn't have a lot of evangelism going on. The last years, that has really changed here, and it's been changing here lately, and that's a blessing. So we just need to have it all balanced. And we'll talk about the other three pillars, and you can have all six balanced. That's a church that God will use. That's a church that will make a difference. And that's what our church should be. Amen? Because, listen, churches are dying everywhere. This country is getting hard. We went out with a brother the other night, and we were saying, you know, back in the 70s and early 80s, there was a lot of people getting saved, a lot of people getting filled with the Spirit, and people just had a hunger for the Word, an interest in the Lord. It was different. And I'm saying now you just don't see that anymore, not on a nationwide basis, but we can see it here. That's what we're talking about Sunday. We don't have to resign ourselves to being judged with the rest of America. And I also think we can be used. There are still his people out there that we will be the ones to reach them. I really believe that. It's not just our little group here and we got to huddle together in a bomb shelter. No, we still have a responsibility to get out there and share and believe God to open doors to share with people in our community and other places. Amen? Amen. So we'll pick it up there next week. Praise the Lord. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you've given us this church here and, and all the, the years of faithful teaching that we had from Brother Hamilton, Lord, and how he kept us from error. You used him to do that. That was just uh, grace on your part, Lord, that kept us from getting into a lot of things that other places did. And we just thank you for that as a church. And we just ask you'll continue to do that. You'll continue to open our eyes. You'll continue to show us our individual responsibilities to this church when we come together and the importance of it that we reverence your word, Lord, and we reverence you throughout our worship from start to finish in this church, and we don't take it for granted, and we don't take it lightly. Just ask that you'll impress that on all of us and the importance of all of us to share the gospel wherever we're at and to hear your word being taught, that we can be corrected and grow and know how to minister ourselves. We just thank you, Lord, that you'll do all of those things for us. And just keep us to be, that's our prayer, Father, that you'll keep us to be a balanced church. And we thank you that you'll do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.